This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, February 12th, 2021, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today we are breaking down partisan barriers with a discussion on bipartisanship in the 117th Congress and the Biden administration. Before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. The Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program is sponsored by the U.S. Office of Personnel Management insured by John Hancock Life and Health Insurance Company, and under a group long-term care insurance policy. The program is administered by long-term care partners. To learn more, visit them at ltcfeds.com today. We will begin our show with an address by Michael Murphy, the director of Fix Us, an initiative by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Mike also serves as chief of staff for the committee, where he manages policy research and analysis on a variety of topics related to fiscal policy and the federal budget. Fix Us works to understand the roots of polarization to help America overcome our division and fix our governing system to achieve national priorities. Mike, thanks so much for being here today. Why don't you start us off uh, with a little discussion on Fix Us and then recently released report on why governing is no longer good politics. Thank you, Natalia. Uh, for having me. It's really a pleasure uh, to join you to talk about this, um, what we obviously believe is a very timely and important topic of uh, overcoming our partisanship uh, and restoring bipartisanship uh, in Washington. So as you said, I I run an organization effort called Fix Us. What we are focused on is engaging Americans to better understand and address our divisions, our distrust, our dysfunction within our democracy that is inhibiting action on a range of issues including budget policy, but obviously not exclusively on budget policy. So let me get a little bit more into that um, about Fix Us and then certainly this report uh, that you mentioned, which we're really uh, excited to talk about. Um, So so let me explain a little bit more about Fix Us. The best way that I can explain what Fix Us is, is in its name. Okay, (laughs) Fix Us, okay? Uh, What Fix Us means is actually, means to denote two things. First is it's a group of Americans who believe that we have a lot of problems to face in this country, but we're not going to do it until we fix the problems within our country, our internal divisions, our distrust, our dysfunction in our democracy. The second meaning of fix us, however, is that we also believe the fix is us. Okay. The fix is actually each and every one of us and how we choose to engage because there is no silver bullet uh, to fix the problems facing our democracy. It really is going to take hard work, each citizen engaging to create a better future. Now, what we do is we create through Fix Us a variety of opportunities for societal leaders and citizens to engage in being part of that process of overcoming those divisions. We do that through a variety of activities, through 
um, issuing reports, issuing analysis, uh, convening events and discussions of citizens that bring attention to that problem. That's what this report I'll, I'll speak to about in a second. Uh, secondly, is we, we build and engage groups of citizens locally and nationally to draw attention to these issues. We have several uh, state chapters around the country as part of Fix Us uh, that are bringing attention uh, to these issues and their root causes, uh, as well as engaging them uh, in a national dialogue, okay, about what are the biggest problems facing the country? What are some big solutions we need to put on the table to overcome our divisions uh, as a key part of what we do? And third thing we do is we partner for progress. Uh, I believe on the, the show today, you'll have other organizations that are working to address uh, our polarized political climate. They're vitally necessary. There's no one effort that's gonna overcome our divisions in this country. It's gonna take so many Americans, organizations working together to partner. So we have numerous partnerships where we identify and advance various solutions uh, to fix what's ailing our democracy. And so as you can tell, there's a broad portfolio of things uh, that we're doing for Fix Us. Now, I'm gonna go to this report uh, that you mentioned. So as part of trying to bring attention to and better understand uh, the root causes of how we've gotten here in the first place. Yes, we just issued a report uh, a few days ago. Uh, it's called, uh, Why is Good Governing No Longer Good Politics? Right? Reflections from a Thousand Years of Service. And here's the nature of the report. The report was, as we have been grappling with this deep question of how we got here, we decided, well, Let's turn to those <laughs> with the experience that have been living in this environment for a long time. And that's what we did. We surveyed um, and got responses from over 50 uh, former members of Congress, ambassadors, cabinet members, former White House chiefs of staff, uh, who were asked to respond to a very simple question. Why is it that good governing, working together, cross-party lines to advance um, solutions to our nation's problem. Why is it no longer good politics? Why is it no longer seemingly politically beneficial to do that? And what do we do about it? And we got numerous responses and issued it into a report uh, that folks can find on our website, fixusnow.org. But here's what they said. They overwhelmingly agreed that yes, it's no longer good politics to advance uh, good governing in Washington. And the reasons they cited broadly fit into four main categories. First is what we refer to as structural incentives. There are structural incentives built into our political system that make it such that it is, you know, more uh, politically beneficial to not solve problems than it is to come together and solve them, right? Uh, you know, politicians are, are people too. They respond to incentives. And the incentives here that they cited were a few things. They cite uh, gerrymandered congressional districts, right? And how our political system allows uh, sort of, you know, politicians to pick their voters as opposed to um, how it should be where the, the politician is broadly representative of the broader electorate. So gerrymandering uh, was, was cited by many. Um, the role of partisan primaries and how partisan primaries, uh, you know, create incentive that um, uh, forces politicians to maybe cater more to the extremes. Uh, of their party and the broader electorate. And obviously the role of money in politics as a structural incentive was cited by many. Uh, and the need to raise money and what that does uh, in terms of uh, incentivizing polarization and catering to catering to special interests uh, as opposed to the, the broader 
um, the broader electorate. So number one was structural incentives. Number two uh, that they cited was our toxic media and social media environment. Um, you know, they, they, many of those with the experience for several decades cited that, you know, there used to be only a few news networks where people got their news. Now there's a proliferation of cable outlets and obviously social media information uh, outlets where people can kind of pick their own news that aligns with their opinion. It has created an environment of echo chambers where people are kind of have their own set of facts. And and these, uh, those who experienced sort of cited the, the idea that it's kind of hard to have productive good governance conversations in Washington. You can't even have agreement on a shared set of facts. And they believe that the toxic media, social media environments of core contribute to that. Uh, the third bucket was, uh, had to do with the role of individual elected officials themselves and how they act, what they do on a day-to-day basis in terms of the hard work of building relationships across the aisle. They, a lot of the uh, you know, former uh, elected officials you know, cited the fact that just people don't have to spend as much time in, in Washington anymore and build those relationships. And that's really key, right? Relationships and, and practicing the art of compromise and what that looks like. They really, uh, really emphasize that in a lot of the responses. And the last and final bucket, perhaps most importantly, is they all cited uh, the need for the need for citizen engagement. Look, uh, elected officials, yes, they respond to incentives. Yes, the media environment is has driven a lot of this. Yes, it's up to individual policymakers to um, build those relationships and do the hard work. But it's also up to each citizen to engage in this process, to hold uh, elected officials accountable that are not working across the aisle, for citizens to get engaged, to get educated on the issues. Uh, And they also cited the need for broader civic education in that regard to to result in in an electorate that is um, better equipped to engage in our uh, political process. So Natalia, that's a lot, I know, uh, but I'd love to sort of answer questions. We think this is a, a really great report to sort of serve as a basis to have a broader discussion and dialogue about how we've got to this point, what we need to do about it. And so with that, I'd just love to answer any of your questions. Mike, thank you so much for that great overview of the report. I think it's really incredible that you guys were able to get so many politicians to really engage with you on this topic. And I'm curious, you, you've clearly, through the Fix Us campaign, done so much outreach to current politicians um, and former politicians on these issues. And, and I want to know what the response you've gotten has been. Do you think there's an appetite among, you know, not only people in the public, but among politicians to really seek out answers to these problems? Or are you seeing kind of, if it's easy to get them reelected, if it allows them to stay in office, is there almost that they don't even want to hear it? They just want to continue with the status quo. The interesting answer to that is it's a little bit of both. Okay. I think that um, there's certainly a sense amongst current policymakers that they feel they feel trapped within this system right now. You know, they don't. Um, this the former policymakers said this, but the current current ones say this too. So many of them, this is not what they go, what they got elected for. They did not go to Washington, do not solve problems. 
okay? Like, um, they, by and large, they all wanted to go um, on behalf of their communities to make our country better. And they are, they feel trapped within a system that is, and so, I mean, that's, I mean, you see in the last several years, uh, you know, sort of retirement rate of, of a lot of members of Congress, for example, they've been around for a long time, that bemoan that frustration uh, as they are, um, as they're heading out the door, you know, where they, they speak to that reason. Now, at the same time, though, um, to your point, that's what I'm saying, it's a little bit of both. The, the other side of that coin is that there is this moment. Uh, that we've been seeing for the last few years, but it really is is picking up right now, uh, where people are realizing, like that that big question: of, like, How did we get here? Like, how did we get to this point? And there really are um, current policymakers, and as you see, lots of former notable policymakers that are asking that very specific question with humility. Like, this is complicated, but if we're if we're going to figure out where to go. We got to figure out how we got here in the first place. And that is something that um, many people, current and former policymakers in this instance are asking. You know, you talked about the structural incentives that prevent this type of bipartisan communication that fuels polarization. Um, It seems to me that, you know, we can address, our, our political system can address these structural barriers, but things like the media, I don't see a world where we go back to a time where we're not on social media, we're not, you know, engaging in that way. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is, is there a path forward on things like the role of the media and what does it look like? How can individual Americans and maybe even media organizations break through those echo chambers in order to combat that polarization? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Well, one of the things we do for Fix Us is, uh, as I mentioned, we have local chapters, but we bring together intentionally small groups of Americans um, to um, to discuss the Fix Us challenge. How do we get it? And I'm telling you, you heard what the former official said. If you talk to uh, Americans of all walks of life, the media, if they had their buckets before, the media would be number one. I mean, they just say, I don't know how we're going to get past this. It's your point. It's like, how are we going to get past this at the media? Because they don't see an easy path out of it. So your your point is a central one, is my point here. As far as what we do, there's several things that sort of come to mind as you think this through. Number one is, you know, we have to realize that the incentives here too, right? Like there's a reason why, okay, um, TV outlets and media outlets are catering to extremes because they it benefits them. Like there's an audience there, right? So we have to recognize that. I think the question many people have grappled with is: there's there is there an audience for the um, the less extreme that you can cater around in some sort of alternative media source? And there's some that are thinking that through. Uh, we don't have a specific answer on that at Fix Us, but there are some that are trying to think: there is there an alternative media? source. Um, the other thing that I think is related and relevant to this is, you know, we are living through over the last year, uh, and certainly for some time to come here, um, in this virtual environment uh, that we've been living through and during the pandemic, um, via Zoom and, and all others, um, it is allowing opportunities for 
mass connection of people across political divides that has not occurred before. And uh, we've been doing a lot of that through Fix Us, where we bring together, as I mentioned, groups of citizens from all different states very easily to talk about issues, fact-based discussion. And I think that kind of broader citizen dialogue at scale, okay, um, is really going to be part of the solution. If you, if you allow those forums where um, people can come together outside of the media and social media filters to actually talk, engage with each other, that's the long, hard work of how you kind of overcome some of those media dynamics. That's a great point. I think this overall theme of, you know, breaking out of the echo chamber and starting a dialogue on this on these issues um, is very important and is definitely an overall theme of the Fix Us report and some of the work that you guys are doing. We need to stop here for our first break, but I really want to thank Mike for joining us and introducing us to the Fix Us initiative. He mentioned the website that you guys can visit to learn more. Please check that out. Mike, this has been a really great conversation starter, and I'm excited to continue it with the rest of our panelists. Thanks for joining me. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am Natalia Castro discussing opportunities for Congress to bridge the partisan divide. I'm happy to introduce two guests who will lead us through the rest of the show with a discussion on the historic value of bipartisanship, the current state of partisan politics, opportunities for bipartisanship in the new Congress, and breaking partisan barriers well into the future. First, let me introduce Ryan Clancy. Ryan is Chief Strategist at No Labels, Welcome, Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. Next, we have Michelle Nellenbach. Michelle is the Vice President of Strategic Initiatives at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Now, I want to give you guys an opportunity to start off the show with an introduction of your organizations. Um, a lot of people inside the Beltway have heard of both No Labels and the Bipartisan Policy Center, but I would like you guys to give us your introduction for your organizations. Michelle, let's start with you. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Um, the Bipartisan Policy Center was founded about 12, 13 years ago really is an energy project. Uh, and we have morphed into uh, a think tank with policy projects in a number of areas, including immigration, energy, healthcare, the federal budget, uh, elections, infrastructure, technology. And the goal of the organization is really to bring together um, proud partisans to try and find um, areas of agreement on policy issues. So. We were founded by four former Senate majority leaders, two Republicans and two Democrats. We encourage folks to bring those partisan IDs into the room, but with the mindset that we're here to find agreement and work together to find some constructive solutions for these pressing policy issues. Um, so we've got a, a, a deep bench of former uh, political and elected officials and um, have, like I said, a wide swath of, of policy expertise. 
Um, so thank you for the opportunity to be here today. One of the things I find so interesting about the Bipartisan Policy Center is that Partisan seems to have gotten a bad rep in Congress. Uh, you know, we always talk about how bad partisanship is, and no doubt we will talk about that in this show, but the Bipartisan Policy Center really does say it's okay to be partisan as long as we can also find opportunities to come together and acknowledge that not everything has to be partisan and give us the opportunity to come together almost despite some harsh partisan affiliations. Um, and I think yeah, that's I like very... Oh. I'd like to say that we kind of mimic what Congress is supposed to do. Um, you know, there was a time where you brought your Democrats and Republicans went into a room and they debated policy issues and they came out with solutions. And usually those solutions that were founded on compromise and um, getting to agreement were the best ones for the country and have been sustainable over the years. And so I like to think that BPC were kind of modeling that ideal behavior. Absolutely. That's a really interesting way to put it. And I know that um, in just a couple moments, we're going to dive a little bit into that or historical process and the value of that type of compromise. Um, Ryan, from No Labels, give us a little introduction to your organization and what you guys do. Sure. Uh, thank you so much. And, um, you know, I, I often think of what we do as it's, it's the flip side of the coin that, uh, you know, Michelle and their team are working on is they're producing so much great policy work. A lot of what we do is trying to get the, some of the politics and the process right, uh, where you could actually get to a point where leaders could embrace some of these kinds of smart policies. So, uh, you know, our big focus is Congress, and in particular, on trying to build a bipartisan governing coalition of Democrats and Republicans. As you noted, the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is 56 members evenly divided between the parties, that, that's really been the major project of ours over time. But we've started to bring together a group of eight senators who are working regularly with one another. And now we've even been hosting monthly bicameral meetings in which you have House and Senate members from both chambers, uh, or both parties, excuse me, working together, which is, which is really unusual, but uh, it's really produced some meaningful results. So I think if you look at that COVID-19 relief deal that passed at the end of December, I think you could say that was a moment where you just had leaders in both parties sniping at each other's for months, getting nowhere. And it was really the rank and file bipartisan members who took the initiative, came up with a proposal and forced it to the table. And we hope that's what the model would be going forward here. Yeah, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about the whole, the COVID relief issues, but it is a great reminder uh, for everyone that it was a bipartisan group that introduced that bill and really helped get it to the finish line after months of negotiations. Uh, data from Pew Research indicates that since the 1990s, Americans have gotten increasingly polarized, which seems to provoke the question, have Americans forgotten about the value of bipartisanship? Can each of you speak to the historic value and, and why it matters today? You know, if you look at the 20th century, you look at every big thing you can think of that passed. Social Security, Medicare, Civil Rights Act, the interstate highway system, and not just things Democrats would like. Tax reform in the 80s under Reagan, Social Security reform, welfare, and a balanced budget in the 90s. All of it was bipartisan. Well, why is that meaningful? I mean, it's, it's not just a sort of historical trivia. That when you do things that way, they tend to stand the test of time. 
they tend to last because there was a process where um, the elected officials really worked to get to a good policy. And then when it passed, it sent a signal to the country that, hey, we collectively decided that this is what's best for the country for a while, and, and this is going to be settled, and now we're going to move on to something else. When you do what we've done for this last decade, nothing is ever settled. So, you know, Donald Trump passes uh, massive tax cuts with only Republican votes seven years earlier. Democrats pass the Affordable Care Act with only Democratic votes. And what happens? So the ACA passes, House Republicans try to revoke it 70 times, governors try to chip away at it, right? Same thing with the Trump tax cuts. It, it'll be one of the first things on the chopping block if, if Democrats uh, can do it. And so um, there is a cost to that. There's, there's a sort of ping pong where we make these massive changes to how our, our, to how our lives are run, to the decisions we can make based on whoever wins an election every two or four years. And that's not the way it's done historically. That's not the way we should be doing it now. And um, that's really what we're fighting to change. Yeah, I don't know that I have a whole lot more to, to add to that. I think he's entirely right that most of the sustained policy successes have been bipartisan and it does not help the country to have us doing what Ryan said, this ping pong back and forth. You look at, so for instance, on, on the international space, which is certainly not my expertise, you look at the Paris Climate Accord. Obama had us in, Trump took us out, Biden's putting us back in. Well, that doesn't help our industries that have to um, try and address greenhouse gas emissions. It doesn't help us with international relations because they don't know from one day to the next what our policies are going to be. And so we really do need to find a way to get back to bipartisan discussions and agreement for consistency um, for the American public, for the folks that the government is regulating, for our international partners. I mean, I think it's key to having... Um, a productive, sustained government that really does meet the needs of its people. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, in some of my work, we deal with executive agencies. And one of the things that we've seen um, with just the huge reversals from the Trump administration to the Biden administration is a difficulty in having our federal agencies pivot so immediately. I think it was interesting, Michelle, you talked about how industry and the American people feel that as well. When we do this political ping pong, it can be very difficult for our bureaucracy even to, to make those adjustments so quickly. It does have a, a lasting impact as opposed to some of these major pieces of legislation that Ryan mentioned, which truly stand the test of time because they were able to garner such bipartisan support. And Natalia, if I could just add one point to that, you know, I think one of the things that sometimes gets lost on people is, is look, you, you are dealing with this every day with you see these rapid changes that happen at the executive agencies. Well, part of what's happening is because Congress is doing so little, the void is getting filled by the executive branch. So you now have this trend where so many of President Biden's executive orders were just undoing something Trump did. So many of Trump's executive orders were just undoing something Obama did. So when you, when you create change that way, it changes at the stroke of a pen. And there's so many changes that are associated with that one order. Whereas if Congress would just do its job, then that wouldn't happen. Law stands the test of time. Executive order 
can flip at any moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that gives us a good opportunity to turn now to the current Congress. Um, in the 117th Congress, we have a 50-50 split Senate. Uh, we have a House that has 221 Democrats with 210 Republicans. We have a lot of really close, you know, majorities. And, and I want to start with the discussion on the 50-50 Senate and what it means to have that type of a split. Um, I'll start with Ryan. What are your thoughts on the current state of the Senate? Well, I mean, it's the kind of thing that you'd look at from the outside and say, well, gee, what, what a forcing mechanism for bipartisanship. They have to work together. They have no choice. Um, I think the problem is, is that there is this instinct now that when people in Washington are confronted with the possibility that I might actually have to work with someone with the other side. Instead of going forward and actually trying to do that, what they start doing is say, how do I find a procedural workaround so I don't have to do that? So let's get rid of the filibuster. Um, let's stretch the definition of what should be in budget reconciliation behind, beyond all recognition. So I can force all kinds of things that really never belonged in that kind of bill in there. Um, and if, if they would just take some of the time they spent, you know, probably pushing their staff to find some weird historical precedent from 40 years ago that lets them push the envelope and, and do something procedurally, why don't you just call your colleague on the other side and try to work out a deal? A much better use of their time. So I, I do think, though, that it, and there's been a lot said about this. It does kind of empower the moderate middle. Um, you, I said this on an event the other day, you can't pick up the paper and not hear about the power that Joe Manchin or, or Susan Collins now has um, as a moderate Democrat and a moderate Republican, because they really can shift the debate. Um, you're seeing some of that with this reconciliation conversation and what exactly should be in, included in it. Um, I'm a little bit more optimistic that I do think it forces them to work together uh, at least in the Senate, because it's 50-50 and the filibuster for now is still in place, thankfully. Um, but I do also think that there is an element to this about the voters themselves where um, they need to be supportive of their members doing these things. Like it should be a good thing when a member says, hey, I just introduced this bill as a Republican and my lead co-sponsor is a Democrat. That's the kind of thing that should get them praise from back home. And I'm just not sure that's going to happen right now because we it just feels so divisive and that too many voters might see that as a bad thing. So that really concerns me. I agree. And I think, you know, as you both have mentioned, we're seeing that tension in the Senate. I want to give you guys a second to speak about, are we seeing that same thing in the House? Does the fact that the Democrat majority is now slimmer than it was a few years ago, do you think we'll see that same kind of energy about empowering moderates? Yeah, I mean, I, I, Speaker Pelosi has always been really good about keeping her caucus together. I think the moderates in the House do have a little bit more say. And but again, they can pass whatever they want on um, a straight party line vote. They just need, you know, 50.1 percent and it's done. So I do think it gives them a little bit more sway, um, at least the moderate Democrats. I think the, um, the only thing I'd add to what Michelle said is that. When you think about that spread and how narrow it is, 
there's a tremendous amount of power there uh, for if five, six, seven members on each side banded together and said, you know what? We are just not signing up for what we typically do around here, which is the majority party just steamrolls, the minority party just obstructs, and the kind of quote moderates just get out of the way. Uh, you know, to their credit, I would say, you know, the Freedom Caucus learned this a long time to get time ago. I mean, they would play a lot of procedural hardball and use their votes as leverage. Now, I think the difference is they were often using their votes as leverage to get to know. They were always looking to um, you know, kill some kind of bipartisan agreement. You could use the same kind of leverage, but in the other direction to say, you know, if, if, if you got, obviously it would be a tough move for say six or seven Democrats to stand in the way of something, say Speaker Pelosi, in the progressive wing in the party wanted. And they couldn't do that and wouldn't do that if the, if the if the Republican colleagues were just sitting on the other side and not offering any kind of alternative. But if you could get a group of members, Democrats, who'd say, hey, we want something bipartisan, and then you get an equal number of Republicans saying, and we're, we're really willing to play ball, no matter what you know uh, the right flank of our party wants. Then suddenly you have a new force in politics. And, uh, and, and I think ultimately that's, that's really the only thing that's fundamentally going to change things is that sometimes we talk about this, that our leaders will practice bipartisanship when they have to, like when they don't have a choice. And it didn't used to be like that. That, it, that in fact, was sort of the default option. You would pursue bipartisanship and maybe you'd move if you had no other choice. Um, but, but if given the choice, they, they, they almost always reach for, well, like, let's just shut out the other side entirely. Um, I don't know that that changes uh, unless and until um, you get a band of members who's just a little bit more assertive and saying they're not going to sign up for this anymore. Well, we have to stop here for our next break, but we will continue this discussion right after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're here with Michelle Nellenbach from the Bipartisan Policy Center and Ryan Clancy from No Labels. So we just discussed the kind of current state of Congress and we took a look at how different groups have played a role in either, you know, pushing bipartisan or partisan agendas in recent years. I think this is a good segue into the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a bipartisan group that No Labels has really been integral in 
promoting and giving a voice um, of moderates and of reason in the House. So Ryan, can you explain the role of no labels in promoting the problem solvers and how you see their role in the 117th Congress? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the problem solvers is, uh, was an idea years in the making. Uh, it, it really started out with no labels, just organizing meetings. I'm talking six, seven years ago. And it was really just to try to find a way to build trust among members. But one of the things that was shocking as we talked to members is you, they would tell us things like, for example, when a new member comes in, they have orientation, just like the first week of college. And they said, there is actually a Democratic bus and a Republican bus that sends them to separate events. And so from their very first day on the Hill, the message is unmistakable. Like there's team blue team, there's team red team, team blue team and red team. We don't talk to each other. We're here to do combat. And that really sets a tone. So initially we were just trying to get people to come to meetings, to you know have some casual discussions, to start to pair off on you know, some relatively small ball policy. And what happened is over time, these members started to build up some trust. And in 2017, they took ownership of this uh, and they created this thing called the Problem Solvers Caucus. So which is today, it is a formal member driven caucus. It's no, no labels does so much to support them from the outside, We're organizing citizens all across the country um, to sort of mobilize behind them. But they are registered as a formal caucus. They have their own staff. They set their own rules, their own agenda. Um, and and that's, that's what we think is a, is a meaningful agent of change, is, uh, is having a block of members who are willing to start to get more organized. Now, it is hard, and Michelle uh, talked about this, just the pressures these, may, these members face. It, it is not rewarded often. Uh, you know, you, know, you think about... Eight out of 10 of these members, their most important race is their primary. Well, who shows up in the primaries? It's not the pragmatic problem solver voters. It's a pretty small sliver of voters on the right and the left, most of whom will punish you if you're being bipartisan. So it's hard, but it's a, we think it's a, a battle that needs to be fought. The Problem Solvers Caucus is a really effective group in the House, and um you know, kudos to, to No Labels for getting that started. It it does address this fundamental issue that we have seen over and over again, uh, that the members don't, they don't know one another. They don't have opportunities to get to know one another. So BBC did a commission on political reform years ago, identified this as one of the key issues, which is, you know, they go home on the weekends. Uh, and I know it's been said a lot and it almost seems cliche, but, you know, they used to, their kids went to school in, in the D.C. area. You could see one another on the soccer fields on the weekends. They would have dinners at night. And this was Democrats and Republicans together. They do not do that anymore. So they don't have a way to form those friendships and those relationships and find out, hey, you know what? I have this water quality issue in my district and so does this other person. And so let's work on a bill together. Um, they don't have those opportunities to build those kinds of relationships anymore. Committee hearings are, they run in, they give their comments, they get out because they're on too many committees right now. And so... Um, I think the efforts like the, the Problem Solvers Caucus is great. BPC has been uh, doing this program called the American Congressional Exchange, where we have Democrats and Republicans visit one another's districts, um, you know, as a sort of a sign of hopefulness that there's no shortage of members who want to do that. They want to show that they're trying to learn what the other side is seeing. And, and so that's been a really effective way. But, it, you know, it's 
there's 435 members in the house. So it's a little hard to get to all of them. Um, but we're trying to do things like that. Um, there's gotta be some incentives though. Like BPC has started giving out, um, um, a legislative achievement award every year to give members recognition when they do work with someone on the other side, because the incentive right now is just, just say no. Um, and so if we expect them to behave differently, we've got to give them a reason to do it. Yeah, I think you've hit on a lot of the, you know, pressures and barriers that politicians see to working across the aisle. And I think it's great that the Bipartisan Policy Center is trying to create no labels as well to create those incentives to bring people together rather than pushing them apart. Um, one of the things we want to talk about in this segment is really like policy avenues in the 117th Congress to bridging the divide. There are, like you guys said, a lot more barriers than there are incentives to come together. But I do think that, you know, for the reasons we mentioned last segment, there are a lot of good opportunities with the current makeup of the Senate, particularly to bridge those divides. I wanted to ask you guys about the kind of legislative approaches. Um, getting large bills passed can be very difficult, especially when they're on really controversial topics like immigration or COVID response. Uh, but some have seen that smaller piecemeal legislation has a better opportunity to make headway on big issues. What do you guys think of these approaches? And do you think we'll see more piecemeal versus large comprehensive legislation in this Congress? Well, you look at the end of every Congress and it's big, massive bills that pass. Um, that's what they had to do at the end of last Congress. They, they and truly it created a lot of um, questions when they combined the COVID relief with the appropriations bills and people outside of DC didn't fully understand that that's what had happened and we didn't put foreign affairs aid in the COVID release bill. But um, so I think they will try and do some smaller bills. I think that's a good way for members to kind of get um, some credit for doing things. Um, but at the end of the day, they're going to package it all together at the end of the Congress or at the end of the year, because that's the only way they can get these things done is to be forced with a deadline. Um, I, I do think, though, that you'll see a big infrastructure bill they will do a highway bill, which involves in the Senate four committees and in the House several. Um, and they are able to do that every six years or so. So that should happen. Um, so there are some bigger ones they can do. Um, the, other, the, problem, the other problem you have with the smaller ones is in the Senate is getting floor time, um, especially once appropriations start. It's hard to get floor time. And so it's easier to just wait and try and package everything together. So I'm not really sure which way they'll go. Um, Ryan might have better insights. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that um, these huge bills are the enemy of bipartisanship. They make compromise impossible. Uh, in this current moment, maybe 30 years ago, you know, it would make sense. But, you know, I think if you take, take a look at, like, look at an issue like immigration. So there's a classic example. If you just take one little issue, it's not a little issue, it's a big issue, but one piece of it, the dreamers. There is such broad bipartisan consensus to fix this issue. Nobody thinks we should be throwing out 800,000 kids who came here when they were four years old. Um, everybody wants a solution, but here's the problem. Everybody realizes that, well, yes, I want that solution, but that's a bargaining chip that I could get something else. So if I'm a Republican, maybe I think, well, gee, if I solve the standalone dreamer issue, then I won't get the support I want for you know, more border aid funding. And that's what happens with everything. 
Uh, and so I understand that instinct is that you want to keep your bargaining chips. But the problem is, is then as a consequence, every single fight becomes this titanic battle over everything we all believe in, right? The more stuff that's in a bill, the more surface area is there is to hit at it and find things you don't like. And if you think about the way these bills come together, they're typically so slapdash, you know, they're full of like technical errors that they have to come back and they're supposed to fix later, but they never do because they can never get bipartisan support to actually do it. So I think if they could just get some piecemeal victories, one, you would actually get some successes, which would be good on their own. Two, it, I think it would start to actually build some momentum that, that I think there's a sense where, you know, you, you don't go from zero to comprehensive immigration reform overnight. You, you have to kind of build some trust and exercise those cooperation muscles a little, and then you build up to the big stuff. Um, so I would like to see more stuff moving in, a, in a, you know, to use a baseball analogy, let's hit some singles and doubles and maybe we'll get the home run eventually. I, I'm going to um, push back just a little bit because I do think if you want to get the dreamers problem solved, you do have to give the other side something. I mean, that's, that's kind of what the legislative process has always been um, is striking these, you know, these bargains with the other side. And, and while I think ideally it would be great um, because you're right, I think there's a majority in both chambers who would say, yeah, let's do something on the dreamers, yeah. but politics, I, I don't, you know, I don't know enough about immigration to know why it hasn't happened, but I think if you give the other side some more stuff on enforcement, then maybe you can get it done. I, I think those are the kind of deals that, that actually bring about more legislating. I think the rifle shots are a little harder Smaller bills that people aren't paying much, you know, there's a lot of bills that pass that yeah. don't make headlines. A lot is done that is never going to be on the nightly news. So those things are happening. But I, I kind of think the deal making helps. Well, you know, what? I, I'll tell you what, let me revise my earlier point because Michelle <laughs> makes a really good one, uh, which is this. I think the, the it's a it's an important little distinction that. Yes, like, like maybe the outlines of a dreamer deal is something more targeted that deals with the dreamers and there is an enforcement part. But that is very different, I think, of, from the massive comprehensive, like if you think about immigration, yes. all the things that are parts of it. What do we do with the people who are here illegally now? How do we weight the system for whether, you know, we care more about family considerations or economic considerations for admitting new people? There are so many elements of, of what a fully, a full comprehensive reform looks like. And we keep trying to do that. And I just don't think that works. So I think if we could take a couple pieces of it where one side gets a little something on the border, one side gets something on the dreamers, good, there's one part of the deal. Now let's go find another compromise where we find another couple pieces we can put. I think that's the way it has to work. I, I would agree with that. I think that's, I think he's 100% right. The, the massive immigration bill that they tried to do under President Bush, that's just never going to happen again um, because there's too much there that kills it. It's just too easy to bring it down. But, and again, I'm sort of getting out of my depth here a little bit. Again, with the criminal justice reform, I think that's why it worked under the Trump administration because it was a narrowly crafted bipartisan agreement um, and it worked. So, um, it may not be rifle shots, but it's not these huge, massive bills either. 
This is a great conversation, but we do have to stop here for our final break. When we return, we will wrap up this discussion. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering the last segment of our show with Ryan Clancy from No Labels and Michelle Nellenbach from the Bipartisan Policy Center. Both of these organizations have introduced really great ideas for how to come together for the American people and to rebuild our democracy in a bipartisan fashion. And I wanna give each of my guests an opportunity to discuss the work their organizations have done to promote a more bipartisan future. Michelle, let's start with you in discussing the recent report from BPC coming together to support workers and families, a pragmatic agenda for the new Congress. Thank you. So, um, you know, obviously COVID has just um, decimated so many families, savings, um, record unemployment numbers. Um, A lot of that is exacerbating existing racial inequalities. And so, we put together a proposal at the end of last year with a series, it's nine policy recommendations on how we can help people recover from this and help try and bridge some of that, um, the racial inequalities that we've seen. Um, so like for instance, one of the tracks is promoting financial resilience and wealth creation. And it's aimed at helping folks save more um, because we've seen like in 2019, which was pre COVID, uh, for a third of adults could not cover a $400 emergency and it got much worse under COVID. And so how can we help people, um, save more so that we're not in that situation where, um, you know, one missed rent bill or something is going to send people down into homelessness and such. And so we put out some recommendations on housing, expanding the housing voucher program, Uh, One of the other tracks is supporting work and expanding opportunity. This would be expanding the earned income tax credit, which is very effectively shown to support folks um, getting out of poverty, expanding Pell Grant eligibility, um, and and continuing the uh, paid leave provisions from the CARES Act. And then the final tranche is helping children and families. Um, We all know the impact this has had on children. and the closure of daycares, it has really uh, exacerbated, you know, made it harder for women to stay in the workforce or a parent, but mostly women, what we're seeing. And so we have um, some of our recommendations are again to increase the child care development block grant, to do apprenticeship programs for child care providers, um, and extend the child care tax credit. So those are just a few of the ideas we had that, that really might help. Um, get bring some people through the the COVID economic downturn a little bit help them get through this a little bit better um and we think we can get bipartisanship bipartisan support for all those none of them are radical ideas they are all aimed at helping families save and support children and so we do think there can be some bipartisan agreement around them You know, it's interesting. We started this show mentioning how the huge COVID relief package that passed in December after such long negotiations was a bipartisan group 
that work together on the plan and introduce the plan. And I, what I really like about, you know, you guys call it the pragmatic agenda for the new Congress, is it really builds on that energy of we are experiencing a national crisis that requires different areas of Congress to come together and create ideas uh, to really rebuild the American people when they need it. And I really like that plan. And I definitely encourage um, all of our listeners to check it out because there's some really good ideas that can help provide the American people with relief at a time when they really need it. And they do present some really good bipartisan possibilities. I want to turn now to Ryan. No Labels recently came out with a report um, outlining six bold ideas to rebuild democracy. This focuses on breaking bipartisan barriers, not just right now, but well into the future. Um, At the beginning of our show, Mike discussed the role of gerrymandering and campaign finance in creating a really polarized political environment. No Labels in this report encourages us to think outside this traditional box of ideas on how to build a more unified America in a variety of different ways. Ryan, can you break down some of these ideas for us? Yeah, and and before I get into some of the specific ideas, it might be useful to kind of talk about the point of departure, which you, you mentioned is that there's a lot of things, like the idea that our democracy is broken is not a novel insight, uh, but, but then it sort of has led people to all kinds of different reform ideas and everything from gerrymandering to ranked choice voting to campaign finance reform and on down the line. And some of those ideas are good, some of them aren't so good, some of them have unintended consequences. And I think one of the things we're trying to level set a little bit for people is that some of the things that you think might fix things, might not do what you think. And gerrymandering is actually a great example. Um, We are not anti-gerrymandering reform. I want to be clear about that. But when we really looked at the data, and we worked worked with a guy up at Syracuse who's really been studying this, that county law, or excuse me, uh, district lines change. And as you know, after the census, we'll be rewriting or, or redrawing a lot of these districts. County lines, though, typically don't. And if you look at the number of counties in the United States that are either 60% registered Republicans or 60% registered Democrats, the number of those counties has doubled in the last 30 years. So what that means is that our biggest problem might not be gerrymandering. It's self-sorted. It's Democrats want to live with Democrats. Republicans want to live with Republicans. Look, I, I live in Brooklyn. You can draw my district any way you want. A Republican is never coming out of here. And so the the best estimate we got from the guy at Syracuse was, hey, if you had a world in which all the districts were drawn on a nonpartisan basis, it would be better. It it would fix 20% of your problem. Uh, So it doesn't mean it's worth doing, uh, not worth doing. Uh, It doesn't mean it wouldn't help, but, but it's not quite the panacea we all imagined. And so it's just, I think, important for all of us to recognize there is no silver bullet any of these ideas, like they can chip away at it. So, so that was our jumping off point. And then we got into some other ideas that we just thought would over time turn down the temperature. So, so I'll just speak really quickly to the first one because Michelle got to this. This idea of building up a political infrastructure to support pragmatic candidates, that has existed on the right and the left for a long time. There's all kinds of advocacy groups and grassroots organizations who raise money and mobilize people in these districts. Um, if you're a pragmatic problem solver, this kind of hasn't been much for you. And um, so again, if we get back to this idea of incentives, it's much easier for me to win my election if I'm just catering to the base and um, you know throwing red meat to them. 
So that's an idea. We had some other structural fixes like term limits for the Supreme Court. That was one. And the idea behind that was very simple. Why is it that every one of these the Supreme Court fights is worse than the last one? And it seems like it, it, it's, it's this titanic struggle for everything we believe in. Well, part of it is a justice that gets put on the court today is probably going to be sitting there in 2050. Lifetime appointments sounded like a great idea in 1780 when everybody lived to be 65. Maybe not so much when we're all going to be living to 90 or 100. So that's just a flavor of some of the, you know, ideas that people don't maybe talk about enough, but, but maybe if they talked about more, it could start to move things in a better direction. Again, I, I think this was a great report, and I highly recommend our listeners check it out because what it really does, as Ryan mentioned, is encourage us to think outside the traditional box of what it, why are, do we have such partisan divides and how can we rebuild them? Um, I really want to thank um, our, my guests for joining us today. Michelle, Ryan, this has been a great discussion, and, and Mike for joining us earlier. Thank you all for listening. Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.